Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Duglas. And uh, Julie, I was looking around on the internet the other day. Yes. Uh, and I found this amazing theory, which is completely out there, uh, completely non-factual, but is, is kind of the, the genesis for this uh, this podcast. And it, it captured your imagination. It captures my imagination and serves to uh, exemplify why this is an amazing uh, concept, the idea of the technology of the ancients. Because uh, the theory involves Vedic nuclear war. Okay, In other words, we're talking B.C. here, right? Right. We're talking... Um, atomic warfare in uh, the first millennium BC, which is a crazy idea. And let's let me just get get it out before I go into the details here. We do not buy into this at all. No, but I see a movie but, here, like a Jerry Bruckheimer movie. Well, it's interesting. I actually was looking around, and uh, Grant Morrison, who's a um, graphic novel comics guy, uh, brilliant, brilliant, and weird. Scottish dude, uh, he's apparently uh, doing some sort of like sci-fi adaptation of the uh, you know the ancient uh, Vedic epic, the Mahabharata, and oh, okay. uh, and so, so some people were thinking along these lines, but but yeah, this this theory which you'll find if you do a search uh, for Mahabharata and uh, or just for n- nuclear uh, warfare, ancient India, you'll find just tons and tons of websites, all of them saying that hey. Um, there are like radio, there are these, uh, you know, the remains of these ancient cities and they're radioactive and there's a big crater and it's because there was nuclear warfare going on way back in the days because the ancient had, the ancients had all this advanced technology. Yeah. That it took us centuries, millennia to, to catch up with again after their fall. And they point to the Mahabharata as Showing proof of this. Yeah, and I should mention too that if you go on such a quest on the internet, you may find yourself in some very odd places uh, down the rabbit hole without like a rope. So yeah, we should just warn people of that. And certainly without a scientific rope. Yeah. Um, so, so and just to, to give a little background on the uh, Mahabharata, you know, this is a is the, an epic of ancient India, written in Sanskrit. And uh, it's full of imagery of warring kings using, utilizing like flying machines, terrifying energy weapons, and and magic and gods. It's um, it's a story of a great rivalry between two royal houses, the Kurus and the Pandavas, and uh, and it it kind of has its genesis in the first millennium BC in the form of just popular stories about gods and kings and okay. so forth. Uh, and the, uh, but then it eventually gets written down. And their traditional date for the war, uh, that is, that's the central event of this epic is, uh, uh, 1302 BC, but most historians assign it actually a later date. So you'll find a lot of these web, these crazy websites, um, uh, citing the, um, uh, Mahaparata. Uh, but they'll, but they'll do this really annoying thing where they'll have like, they'll have like a particular, um, you know, section of text here and here where they're, where it sounds, you know, it's like, hey, it sounds like they're talking about, you know, somebody using some sort of crazy advanced technology to blow mm-hmm. up a city and they're talking about people fleeing burning cities and food becoming contaminated. That's great. And then you go, and then, you know, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, hey, let me look up the original on that because I just want to be sure since this is a crazy website and then it's the text. It's got flashing graphics yeah, and a and black the, the background. The text is green against that black background. <laughs> I'm like, well, let me, let me research this. But and then you look down to where they cite it and they just put cite the Mahabharata. The Mahabharata is one is a 100,000 verses long. Mm-hmm. So you, you can't just say, oh, it's like me saying God is love, dude. Quote the Bible. 
It, it yeah. just doesn't, yeah. you know, give me a little specific to go on. Uh, I found some where they'd actually say, oh, this is from the Drona Purva section of the Mahaparata, but that section in and of itself has over 200 subsections of text. So, yeah. um, the best I could find, like, fine, just, um, on my own time mm-hmm. when without just killing days trying to track down what sources these guys may or may not be quoting from, um, if, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read like a real quick bit. Just no, no, because like I a, think, again, it captures your imagination. It's this ideas of this ancient warfare and kings and flying saucers even, perhaps. Maybe, I don't know. Or gods, you know. Yeah. But, uh, so here's here's a little bit from Section 34 of Book 8, the Karna Parva. And uh, it goes a little something like this. I'm going to use kind of a dorky voice. Rap? No, I'm not going to rap. <laughs> but I'm going to I'm going to do a voice, you know, kind of. Okay. A, you know, I like me to voice. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, then he called Nila Rohita, that terrible deity robed in skins, looking like 10,000 suns and shrouded by the fire of superabundant energy, blazed up with splendor, that discomforter of even him that is difficult of being discomforted, that victor, that slayer of all haters of Brahma, called also Hara, the rescuer of the righteous and destroyer of the unrighteous, the illustrious Thanu, accompanied by many beings of terrible might and terrible forms that were endued with the speed of the mind and capable of agitating and crushing all foes, as if with all fourteen faculties of the soul awake about him, looked exceedingly resplendent. Wow. So, I so like that. Yeah. So it's like lots of that. And that's that's awesome. And you can made it, even better by your Charlton Heston like voice, <laughs> by the way. I could have hammed it up even more, but but some of the uh some some of the words are a bit uh bit out there. They're about tricky. But, yeah, the names and all. But okay, but you know, there's an example of yeah, there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on in here. There are these references to these like these different uh, astras, which are some people think are weapons, and then there are these yantras, which people think are machines. And if you go to some of these websites, they'll even get real detailed with it and say, this is referring to a flying machine. This is talking about nuclear weapons. This is talking about a TV screen or a heat ray or a holographic device. And uh, these are inter- interpretations of this text, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, then to the ruins, there there. We do have ruins of the ancient cities of Harappa and um, Mohenjo-Daro. And uh, these were once great metropolises of the Indus Valley civilization, some of the earliest urban centers in the world. And, mm-hmm. and you know, now they're gone. But you, you see these references talking about radio radiation in these sites. And there's just no... I, I could not find a single source no, that actually no. backed that up. I applaud you for, for looking into it so intently because I have to admit that when I was looking into it and I started to see some talk of antimatter, I started to back away because I knew that like <laughs> right around the corner aliens were hanging yeah. out there. So I was like, it, it is, it is a very intriguing thing. And I think what's so intriguing about it is because people were thinking about warfare and technology, um, in, in a very complex way. Uh, much before they could even actually put it into use, right? We've seen this yeah. over and over again. Uh, we, we see, we've seen this with Da Vinci and drawings uh, with all sorts of ideas of how to create stuff that he just was way too ahead of his time to, to put into motion. Yeah. It, it, it drives some, the, the real examples we're going to look at here, the ones that are actually, <laughs> that we can actually say, yeah. yes, this happened or this probably happened and are not related to atomic wars between demigods and in a primal age. Um, these these are all examples of that, that that really show how 
how much the human mind can accomplish, even if it doesn't have the same tools that the uh, minds have today. Yeah. Like I kind of like to think of it as imagine you give one guy a sheet of paper and one guy a poster board. And then both of them are artists and you say, fill it up with some art for me. You know, give me some art. And, uh, and if they're, they, they both have the same amount of skill, one guy's going to be able to fill up one, uh, you know, sheet of papers worth of art and the other guy's going to fill up one, uh, poster board's worth of art. And today we can fill up more of a poster board size because we have the science. We were able to stand on the backs of giants. Right. We, uh, we we have a much more advanced technology to aid the human mind in developing these things. But still, given the limited, um, you know, restraints of the time, uh, some of these guys, uh, you know, in the, um, you know, before Common Era, back, uh, you know, in, in B.C. time, they were accomplishing amazing things with their technology and, and in their understanding of the visible universe. Yeah, which became a pretty nuanced understanding for for that time and those capabilities, as mm-hmm. you mentioned. Um, I, I did want to talk about real quickly a couple of things that I came across, which were kind of lo-fi uh, yeah. tech, uh, uh, I guess you could say, inventions of warfare. And this is from the Christian Science Monitor. Uh, it's called, the article is called Early Weapons of Mass Destruction. And uh, they cite a king in Asia Minor of the 2nd century BC who was defeated when Hannibal quote, catapulted live snakes onto ships. Okay. Which I thought, it's creative, right? Yeah. It's a sort of warfare. It's the kind of thing you would more expect from ancient times as opposed to dazzling weapons of light. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you see, like, you know, flamethrowers, snakes. I mean, the snakes thing, I do have to say, kind of reminds me of Pee Wee Herman a little bit. Like, Did he he catapulted snakes? No, I mean, he... he, uh, he released some snakes, I believe, oh. from a pet store. But if he were to go into warfare, I'm pretty sure that's how he would do it. Um, and then there's sort of an example of early bio-warfare. And this is 1500 B.C. The Hittites sent plague victims into the land of their enemies. And uh, this is from the same article. They basically say in this article, quote, the principle of summoning plague for self-defense may be related to the reality that invaders are Im- immunologically mm-hmm. naive and therefore more vulnerable to epidemic diseases in foreign lands than the local population. So there oh, yeah. was some sort of understanding about um, disease mm-hmm. and other cultures perhaps not having or being vulnerable to it. Yeah. You know, this is this is a bit of an uh, extrapolation of the idea. But again, there's this idea that that. Uh, Humans are sitting around saying, "How is? How can I best my enemy?" Yeah, and I've got snakes at my disposition. <laughs> I've got a couple of plague victims. You know, what else can we do here? Yeah, and it's a lot more nuanced than uh, saying, "All right, guys, uh, we really want to take uh, these other uh, this other tribe's uh, stuff. So let's go poke them with sharp sticks. Everybody, get a right. sharp stick. Let's go. Let's do it." Yeah. Yeah, that sharp stick idea didn't work out so well last time. What else can we do? Um, so this has kind of brought us to, to actually what we were talking about before, which is these much more complex mechanisms that people began to look into to, to better understand the world and right. to navigate it. And in particular, there's something called the Islamic astrolabe. Very cool thing. Yes, the astrolabe is pretty amazing. And uh, I'm going to... I'm going to put together, as usual, a blog post to accompany this, and I'll be sure to have an image of an astrolabe because it's you, you've probably seen it before, and uh, and and you know what I'm talking about here. But uh, but you have to look at them because they're just beautiful. It's beautiful, they're yeah. Works of art, um, as was common in those days when you're creating a, an artifact. Um, 
that's going to aid you in anything. You're also going to, it's, you know, it's like illuminated manuscripts. It's yeah. insightful, but it wants to make it beautiful as well. And it's the same. I was here. trying to think about how to best describe it. And it's obviously it's this disc that mm-hmm. has uh, these different inlays on it and with inlay uh, sort of like carvings too, and all sorts of um, information and symbols on it and so on and so forth. But it reminds me of something that, like, that you would create now as a steampunk piece of jewelry. Yeah, it does have that kind of look to it. It's basically it's a small circular device, usually made of wood or brass, sometimes paper, um, varying degrees of, like we said, artistic uh, embellishment. And uh, essentially, it's a model of the stars in the sky. And you can move them to show where the stars would be at any time in the year. And then you flip it over, and you and uh, there's like a gear. And uh, you can, uh, and this side concerns the sun and the moon. And it, uh, the, the basic idea, the concepts originate around 330 B.C. Right. And um, the, uh, the Arabs of the 9th century were the ones to perfect it. And, and this right. is what's crazy. After they perfected it in the ninth century, it was the basic astronomer's tool for the next 700 years. That's how much staying pro- power this device goes. Nowadays, yeah. my, my iPad or my, my pod or iPhone or any kind of technological device I have, it has like what a shelf life of, of maybe a year before, uh, uh a new version comes along. Right. And granted, they were, you know, in, in a lot of this time, they were adding little features, apps, if you will, to the Astrolab. Yes, they uh, were. Astrolabe. And, uh, uh, but but still, the basic concept was just held strong, right? And uh, we should probably mention too that it's the the design and the execution of the design is credited with Apollonius in 250 BC. Okay. So that'll just kind of ground everybody in in what we're talking about here in this timeline. And again, uh, you talked about the actual idea of it being around around 330 BC, yeah, and that's, that's the figure I've yeah, come across. and that's that's because people had a hold on a concept called stereographic projection, which is used in this device. Um, the, the ironic thing to me about this is that, yes, yeah, this app that if you know how to use it, you've got like a thousand different choices on different data that you can access. But yeah. if you were to put it in your eyes hands today, it would be like putting a banana in our hands and being like, Hey, use this to find out what time it is. Yeah. We'd have, we'd just be like, Oh, this is pretty. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. It would, it would be as lost in our hands as, uh, my iPhone would be in the hands of somebody from, uh, well, probably we, we would be more lost because I think that I was going to say it's so yeah. <laughs> intuitive. I think they'd start to, you know, oh, the screen moves. OK. Yeah. And yeah. then that individual would rule the world inside a week with that with that phone. Uh, oh, well, yeah. no, he probably wouldn't be able to get 3G if he traveled back. In- yeah, yeah, that's true. But um, but no, an astrolabe can let you tell the date and time, calculate distances, determine prayer times. Uh, you know, this is especially drawing to its uh its uh, origins in uh, in the Middle East and its perfection in yeah. the Middle East is that uh, people um, uh, Muslims were able to use this to d- make sure they knew what times they needed to pray. Uh, likewise, it could be used to determine the direction of Mecca, mm-hmm. uh, so you know which direction to pray in. Uh, it can determine building heights. It can be used in surveying, longitude, latitude, altitude, horoscopes, um, position of the planets, uh, various occult usages that are tied in with. Uh, with the, the position of the, of the heavens. Well, and there's the astrological events that correspond to the Islamic faith too, right? right. So, um, that was important for them to know as well. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it, I mean, for a long time, if you were a learned individual, uh, you probably had an astrolabe. Yeah. And this is the cool thing too about this is that Islamic astronomers, they really did work on this for centuries and centuries, as you say, perfecting it. Uh, and this is not something that we've seen in the past with other mechanisms or technology that, you know, a group of people would um, 
or a faith even, would work on something so diligently to try to make it the best that it could be. Usually what happens is that technology is created and then someone somewhere on the other side of the world, you know, reinvents the wheel. Right. Um, or, you know, the technology itself may fall away or become distorted. But yes, you know, these scholars kept it um, alive for so many years that by the time that it became used in the age of discovery, it was sort of poised to actually usher in the age of discovery, right? right? Uh, because all of a sudden we had this this incredible instrument that you could navigate with. And that just kind of opened up the whole world, right? Yeah. I mean, um, I was looking through uh, um, a, one of uh, James Burke's books, uh, I think it was Connections, talking about the way different inventions uh, sort of um, timeline to yeah. each other. And uh, the astrolabe is one of these, like you look it up in the index and it shows up just dozens of times because it was it's an important step in our technological and uh, scientific evolution. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that if it wasn't the place that it was at the time, then the age of discovery would not have happened. Yeah. We'd be living in a very different world, most likely. Yeah. Well, hey, we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a little something called the Antikythera Mechanism. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow. And we're back. The so the Antikythera mechanism. Oh, I did want to mention something really quickly. Oh, you did. This is just one of those like cool fact things uh, about the astrolabe. The first technical manual on it. Oh yes. Yes, it was actually written by Geoffrey Chaucer for his eleven-year-old oh, wow. son, so so he could understand how it worked. That's so, interesting. Great writer, one of the greatest writers of all time. Also right. had a technical manual for a device. Possibly the first code monkey? Maybe. I don't know. It's kind of like our that's own. It's kind of a uh, loose use of the term, but. <laughs> that's like, uh, kind of like HowStuffWorks own, uh, Tracy V. Wilson. She used to do, uh, technical, technical manuals, I think. Yes. That's what I've heard anyway. And I'm pretty sure that she has an astrolabe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've seen her, I've seen her on Marta pull it out and figure out. Where she yeah, yeah. Been. Kind of this yeah. train is running late yeah. again. Yeah. That was before she got the, she upgraded to an iPhone, but. I was yeah, like, why do you have an astrolabe? Just, just now she's phone. in the fold. Yeah. So, um, let's look at this Antikythera mechanism. Now, this, uh, you may recognize from, uh, if you've seen images of it, it kind of looks like a rusted gear, kind of green looking gear embedded in a big lump of stone. Yeah. And I love the idea that these divers found it. What, yeah. 1902, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Ni- 1900 or so. Yeah. 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 They're, um, Sponge divers, and they spotted it. And you think that they're, it was probably covered in barnacles. Yeah. And they're probably like, what is this hunk of junk sitting here at the bottom of the sea? Like, I wouldn't have thought to, to pick it up and bring it with me. If I saw it in somebody's garden, I might be like, oh, well, that's, that's a neat use of an old gear-looking rock. But I wouldn't have thought it was amazing. Yeah, although I was thinking about it in the context of that period of time where there was so much archaeological discovery that I'm sure that people, you know, divers all the time were probably looking for shipwrecks. Um, and this was, in fact, part of a shipwreck that was off the island of mm-hmm. uh, Antikythera. So, so named for that island. Right. Yeah, and it uh, it turns out as best we can we can understand it, it was uh, in, in a, very much like the the astrolabe, and it was an astronomical device representing the movements of the heavens, which to the ancient Greeks was five planets because that's all they they knew of. Again, think to that uh, you know the the whole paper versus uh, uh, poster board painting. You know, right. they were working within the limits of their uh, their understanding, but but it had a, a really alarmingly com- you know complete understanding of it. Um, Studies of the wreck and the cargo it carried suggested the ship set sail in around 65 B.C., and it was heading west from Asia Minor. 
It was a Roman ship, and it was carrying Greek loot back to Rome. Oh, I love it. The rogue part of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Almost like it was cursed, like, you know, they took it and then it exactly. sunk the vessel. Yeah. But, um, there's no evidence for that. <laughs> <laughs> Just fun to think about. Yeah. Though it did, ha- uh, you know, it did have, uh, Greek inscriptions on it, which is another key, uh, you know, way that we're able to, to try and understand what it was. And these inscriptions, uh, on the device dated back, you know, up to around 100, 150 to 100 BC. And it suggests that it was already a few decades old when the ship sank. So now it seems more likely that it was actually made in Syracuse and then uh, then was taken east to show off to the scholars uh, at Rhodes. So uh, what we're now where Syracuse gets interesting is that uh, Syracuse was the hometown of Archimedes. Oh yeah, yeah. the uh, the ancient uh, mad genius, mad genius mathematician. Yeah. And uh, now he lived a, he lived a century before this mechanism was made. So there's no yeah. way he could have made it. Uh, he couldn't have created it, but he pioneered the use of gear wheels to achieve different force ratios, to mm-hmm. lift weights, uh, things like that. So, um, based, you know, based on what we know, um, it's, it seems like he, a lot of his ideas may have wound up in this device. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's very likely that, um, uh, that he maybe even held on to one yeah. himself. Um, giving, given his sort of penchant for, stuff and gears yeah. and um i guess you could say that he was a gearhead of yesteryear oh definitely yeah um this is from the antikythera mechanism research project is a question that says does does the mechanism favor a heliocentric or a geocentric universe oh so is the sun at the center of the universe it depicts or is the mm. earth at the center of the universe it depicts yeah which is a really interesting question you yeah. and i have talked about this a lot both before. wrong but right but, but still they they represent a drastic change in are thinking about the cosmos. Yeah, and it, this gives us a little bit of a clue too of how well they understood the world. And, and mm-hmm. uh, so the the answer um, from this organization is, in a word, neither. The purpose of the mechanism is clearly to position heavenly bodies with respect to the celestial sphere, with reference to the observer's position on the surface of the Earth. In order to achieve this, this mechanism has to use a geocentric model. However, this does not imply that the manufacturer favored a geocentric model of the universe. In fact, it was Aristarchus of Samos, uh, around 300 BC, who first proposed a heliocentric solar system in 297 BC. Unfortunately, proponents of the heliocentric universe were inc- increasingly persecuted for their beliefs in ancient Greece and in later times. It is highly probable that the maker of the mechanism was aware of the heliocentric universe, but it does not imply he favored it. Okay. So I think it's really just interesting to know that maybe there were politics going on at that time, yeah. that if you were creating this instrument, that you might not necessarily... Talk about um, what the implications of it might yeah. be in terms of understanding the world or even understanding religion or society with this mechanism. Um, of course, we've talked about that in, in other podcasts uh, in, in much more detail. But we should probably get to Archimedes because, again, this guy, mad genius. I mean, I feel like he was the Byron of, of his time. <laughs> yeah, minus the uh, the pet bear and the, uh, the skull full of wine, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or is it the moose? No, no, I think. Oh, he had a bear. I, you know, I, you, you I got just, confused t- with Tika. Yeah, Tika Brahe. Yeah, Brahe. Yeah, yeah. I get drunk animals, uh, people. I get those confused all the time. In those days. Yeah, but this guy, he had something called a death ray. Yes. Uh, well, well did, he, now, did he ever have it, or do you just have the plans for it? Well, this is. I mean, we all have plans for death rays. This but, is in debate, right? Yeah. Right, right. He had his drawings. Uh, we know that for sure. But we think that. Well, 
it's it's let's just say that it's up for debate, <laughs> but it's highly probable. And um, this is from Josh Clark's article. What was Archimedes death ray? Uh, basically, it's a series of mirrors that reflected sunlight onto Roman enemy ships that were uh, moored in the Archimedes hometown of Syracuse. The ships were burned by the collective condensed sunlight and caused the entire fleet to catch fire. So oh, this wow. was the idea. So this guy is sitting around thinking, okay, we're about to be attacked. What is my, what sort of tools do I have laying around here? Oh, the sun. Um, and this is someone, again, who, when you go back to, uh, creativity, uh, humans and, and trying to figure out a better way to, well, in this case, kill each other. Yeah, yeah. to say exact revenge. But that, that's what happens throughout our, History of science. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, I mean, this guy was thinking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was sitting at home in his hammock, if he had a hammock, um, thinking, how can I utilize the sun's energy best? Which is pretty amazing for yeah, this yeah, time totally. period, right? We're talking about 287 BC. Yeah, we're talking about just you know thinking about advanced uh, usage of optics and uh, and mirrors and uh, yeah yeah. What I like best from this article is the the quote that is. Uh, ascribed to him, to Archimedes, which is, and I'll try my best with Charlton Heston here. Okay. Give me a lever long enough and a place to stand and I will move the world. <laughs> okay, that got <laughs> that, Arnold Schwarzenegger that, that at the end. Yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah. But I love that. This is a guy who was, again, just no holds barred. Yeah, he's like, hey, you got something for me to do? You know, I mean, that's the way he was Technically a freelancer, you know, so you, you've got to, when you're in a, fr- a freelancing situation, you got to put yourself out there like that. You, you know, you're like, what, you need me to write an article about this? Yeah, give me a pen. I can write it. You know, <laughs> what I like about this guy, too, is that he just did not like go gently into, in, you know, into the world there. I mean, at the end of his life, at 75 years old, a Roman soldier came to get him and he was doing a calculation and he was he was basically saying, step off. I'm in the middle of something. Yeah. It was completely ignoring the fact that this guy was his doom. <laughs> and, uh, you know. And he, so he died doing math. I can imagine yeah. him being like, carry the one. And then he dies. Uh, yeah. I, I almost had it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's dangerous work, math. Yeah. Yeah. So that leads us to another uh, interesting uh, possible past technology. If not an actual technology, then again, people thinking about the technology. And that is robots. Yes, I know. And people are going to be like, no, really? You guys found a way to go back to robots? Yeah. Yeah, we, we did. Yeah. But yeah. these are different robots, and these are not... This isn't, you know, as much, oh, can we make a robot that can lie to people, or can we make a robot that can fall in love with people? I mean, these were, these were, you know, back to like the 13th century, even, uh, guys looking at the human form and saying, well, you know, the human body is basically a machine, and I'm pretty good with machines. Um, I'm going to take a go at building one, see what happens, you know? Um, yeah. What their idea of a machine could be, or even if you were trying to replicate a human at that time. So we're talking about a lot of wood here and screws. Yeah. Um, and these stories are they're the kind of things where, like, if you were making a, even if you're just making basically a mannequin with with moving parts, uh, that would be kind of outrageous, and that's going to cause stories. If I did right. that, people would say, I don't know what he's doing. He's He's got a mannequin in his house, and it... It moves. There's something fishy going on. So even more. <laughs> like Robert and the real girl, and you've got like this wooden, like yeah. mechanical, life-size thing next to you. Yeah, people are going to talk. So our stories of these are often a little elaborated. Um, like, for instance, there's a 13th century Albertus Magnus, um, you know, great thinker, uh, later canonized by the church. Um, but he was he worked on this uh, automaton uh, that he supposedly had given 
quote, the powers of speech and thought. Um, it was, it was said to be composed of metals and unknown substances chosen according to the stars and, uh, endowed <laughs> with the spiritual qualities of magical formulas and so forth. I mean, this was a time of alchemy, um, in a, which in, in, in some ways was a crude science and, uh, was sort of science mixed in with a little, um, magic and, and, and folk ideas. It was just kind right. of unformed. It's kind of like science is in the oven cooking. It's a pie. But if you were to take it out and eat it as alchemy, it would be a bit gut shot and runny. Like it still needed a little while to actually cook before it became early science. Yeah, I think of it as like the <clears throat> the wood chips in your backyard that are supposed to become strawberries in that pie. They never became strawberries. <laughs> it was a wood chip pie. Yeah. And that that's the problem with alchemy, right? It was yeah. a great idea, but not based in anything actually scientific. Yeah. So supposedly this thing could walk, it could speak, it could perform domestic chores. Now, th- this... We're just going to go ahead and cast away the idea that this thing was walking around like a human. But it's easy to imagine this guy that was interested in the way the human body works uh, creating something that, that could move when you pulled on some pulleys or something. Or uh, supposedly there was a, uh, like, a, uh, like a brass head that could speak, you know. So, I mean, it could have basically been a puppet. He, and he may, you know, may have had a sense of humor. You know, it's like, hey, look at the, the brass head talk. And, you know, it's freaking out. The, well, the see, now I'm thinking old Magnus was sitting there doing some ventriloquism. Maybe, but right. it worked on his disciple uh, Thomas Aquinas because uh, he, appa- he allegedly decided that the, d- the device was diabolical and destroyed it with a hammer. <laughs> That's because he just got annoyed with ventriloquism. Yeah, that could have been it. He yeah. was just he was he was tired of it. So there's that story. Like I said, there's not a lot to go on there, but it's it's one that I love to think about. Um, and then in the 15th century, of course, Leonardo da Vinci, right? Yeah, yeah. We have a great article that's called Top 10 Leonardo da Vinci Inventions um, by Christopher Lampton. And he actually wrote about da Vinci built, actually built this because most of the times he would just create plans for it or drawings. Mm-hmm. But he had um, a plan for a robotic knight that was based on his working knowledge of anatomy and mechanics. And... Um, he built it, right? This life-size knight, and uh-huh. it uh, it did not survive, unfortunately. And no one is exactly sure of what it was capable of doing, but apparently it could walk, sit down, and it could even work its jaw. So again, we're seeing the ventriloquism here. Um, it was frequently uh, brought out at parties thrown by yeah. uh, wealthy Leonardo patron uh, Lodo. You take it because uh, Lodovico yeah. Savorza. Yeah, you're better with the Italian. I think. So, yeah. It's the, probably awful. But well, better than mine. But anyway, the, the mere fact that the, the robot is making appearances at drunken parties uh, tends <laughs> right. to, I think, lend to the idea that that it, it wasn't actually a, uh, you know, too elaborate a, a thing, that it was that it had a, a certain comic element to it, that it was maybe kind of a big puppet. I'm seeing some sort of thread here with becoming an icon. Right. If you're going to be Tico Brahe or Da Vinci or you're going to be Byron, you've got to have something that you roll out at parties that involve <laughs> drinking. Right. And then, I mean, it's a moose or a drunk dog. A, a bear. A bear. Drunk, sorry. A, bear, a drunken dog, moose. Yeah. Tico had the moose, drunken moose. Bear. Yeah. And then your robotic knight. Yeah. 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 Was, you know, you had to. Had to stay kind of crazy, kind of dangerous. Yeah. You know? So I mean, just I'm just noting that for anybody who wants, who's going for icon status yeah. here, that's something that you probably want to work into your shtick. But um, but yeah, I mean, this is still a really cool thing, and it was uh, used uh, or driven by a system of pulleys and gears. Mm-hmm. So back in the day, I'm sure that it was absolutely shocking. Yeah. 
And then in the 17th century, here's an, this is another, now this one, there's not a lot to really go in here, but I still find it amusing. Uh, there was the, uh, the notion that, uh, French philosopher René Descartes allegedly had, uh, I should probably say allegedly, allegedly, like use it twice just to drive home, had a beautiful automaton named Francine, which he built to replace his deceased daughter. And he would take on, uh, uh, when he had to sail somewhere, um, uh, he would have the, the, the android stored in a crate under, under deck. But, um, so many things wrong with that. Yeah, there just, there are a lot of things wrong with it, especially the validity of it. Um, I don't, right, think, right, I don't right. think there's anything to it. But, uh, according to, um, Alison Murray in, uh, uh, her book, The Enlightenment Cyborg, she makes the case that this was a time where, um, and, and you see roots of this with Da Vinci and mm-hmm. Magnus. We're, we're learning more and more that the human body in many, um, in many ways is a machine. We're coming to grips with the mechanical nature of humanity. And it, it leads to this kind of weird identity crisis of what are we? You know, we're not this, we, you know, we're not quite this magical divine creation. We're, we're something else and we're not even this, you know, spark of life in, in meat. We're some sort of a, some sort of machine. And we're, and so it leads to questions like, well, then can we make a machine? And it's, and to a certain extent, we're still, we're still uh, troubling over that today, except in, in fields such as, uh, genetics and, um, and in other related films, and to a certain, to a large extent, still in robotics. Yeah, I mean, actually, robotics, um, it, as you say, in biology and neo evolution, this is a big topic that's coming up, right? Mm-hmm. And and how we can, or can we, actually, is the question, influence our evolution? Um, should we? Should we stop? So on and so forth. And um, I don't know. It's all. It's just all a very fascinating question, and also the Blue Brain Project, right? We've talked yeah. about this before. About um, there are people who are trying to reverse engineer the human brain, so we can actually put a blueprint together. So you're saying yeah. all these different things converge. So actually, this, what is really interesting about this is that there is a thread between the you know ancient technology and future technology. And you look at robotics expert Mark Rosheim, who used Da Vinci's notes to build a working model of a Da Vinci robotic knight, and then some of those concepts were actually used for design of planetary exploratory robots uh, by NASA. Oh, wow. So you see that blueprint back in time being used in the future. Well, because these guys were basically trying to do what roboticists today continue to try and do, Mm -hmm. um, or or some roboticists, working on how do you make a machine that moves like a person? Um, And part of it, you know, there's a little bit of human vanity still tied up in there. Can I make the thing that I am? But also, as we try to make robots that can navigate a human environment, and, and live alongside humans, it becomes, you know, ideal to have a machine that moves like us and can manipulate the same objects that we manipulate so that, you know, that a human can use the same screwdriver as a robot and vice versa. Yeah. It's yeah. the Geppetto conundrum. That's yep. what I'm going to call it. Pinocchio. And, uh, yeah. 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 So let's see. I don't, uh, I guess we're beginning to run out of time a bit in this. I wanted to touch real quick on the idea of ancient mathematics. Um, I have a blog post about this that I did a while back that I'll probably uh, link to in the accompanying uh, blog post for this podcast. But yeah. there's a really neat idea that was put forth by Mark A. Peterson in The Geometry of Paradise. And uh, he, he points out that, that Dante, um, uh, 14th century author of uh, Inferno, you know, the Divine Comedy, um, there's a lot, of, if you ever read the Divine Comedy, there's, there's a lot of math thrown in there, a lot mm-hmm. of science. Like, Dante was interested in everything, and... You see him throwing math and science into his uh, imagining of this, uh, the, these different afterworlds. And um, so Peterson points out that Dante could have easily excelled as a mathematician had he been born into a time when geometry was more fashionable. 
but instead he lived in an age of languishing mathematics between the Hellenistic period and the 17th century. So here's a quick quote. He's, uh, Peterson says, uh, medieval cultures were in the peculiar condition of being, un- being unmathematical cultures in possession of sophisticated mathematics. They possessed in it the sense of having the books, studying them and translating them, and even doing some mathematics, but they had no clear indication where this rich subject had come from or what it would be good for. They did not know, in our terms at least, what it was. So I, I, I go into that a bit more in the blog post, but, but I love the idea you know, because I think that's what's uh, what's fascinating about about concepts such as the the crazy idea that there was a Vedic uh, nuclear war and mm-hmm. that and they had this advanced technology in the old days is the idea that we could forget it. It's the the reason we love the idea of of uh, post apocalyptic scenarios where we have to re understand past technologies. Um, the the idea that that uh, that math would, had kind of been forgotten for a while and that it was this thing that you know it was like. Us picking up a uh, an, an astrolabe and saying, "What is it? How does it work? I don't know. It's pretty. Let's put it up there on the on the wall." It's a, it's yeah, and and the fact that we're going through a similar period just because we have such advanced technology that we no longer need the basic fundamentals. I won't even say fundamentals. I mean, yeah. some of the the, the more complex um, aspects of math we just don't need to master anymore because we simplified our existence. Yeah, I could not build an iPhone, obviously. But to your point about um, Dante, what I think is really interesting is that during that time period, I mean, those were the scholars that were that they it was the scholars that were sort of keeping this alive, right, to a certain extent. And uh-huh. It was in the real house, not necessarily um, something practiced by the public at large. And if Dante, who wrote in Italian rather than Latin, because mm-hmm. he wanted to reach more people, yeah, he wanted right? to reach the reach the people, yeah, right. If he had a better understanding of that, it would be very interesting to see how that might have influenced the masses during that time. Yeah. But of course, if Dante had gone into math, we would have, we might have missed out on one of the greatest pieces of literature the world has ever seen. So, here, here. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, so advanced te- technology of the ancients. It's a great subject. I really love it. Um, but let's get some listener mail in here before Gary drives us out of here. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> um, first, we have one from Jackie. Jackie writes in and she says, Hello. First of all, thanks for the podcast on meditation. I've recently begun meditating, and just as I started wondering what was happening in my brain, you show up with the answer. Hey. Mm -hmm. I'm actually writing with a request that I'm sure you've received before. How will the zombie apocalypse work? After all, we have an official emergency plan and the zombie-proof house. Uh, Yeah, both of those, I think, have showed that we've uh, discussed the... the emergency plan from the CDC uh, in a blog post uh, last week. And uh, the zombie-proof house, I think, is showing up on our Facebook feed. Yeah. Um, blow the mind, Facebook. Anyway, Jackie goes on to say, anyway, thanks for a great podcast. Keep up the good work. Um, yeah, the, the zombie apocalypse is an interesting uh, scenario and just trying to figure out, you know, how we respond to um, to scenarios of a, a pandemic uh, a disease. Uh, the CDC, of course, has jumped on it recently. Uh, is using yeah. it to, as a way to, to sort of get the message out about emergency preparedness because the emergency preparedness kit that you might have for the zombie apocalypse is more or less like what you would have, you know, in case there was an energy crisis or disease or fire or earthquake or any number of things. Yeah, I thought it was a brilliant way to, to bring attention to that. Yeah. Just to, you know, basically parallel it with the zombie apop- apocalypse. Yeah. And I, I rec- highly recommend anybody who's interested in zombies, if you haven't already, read um, Max Brooks' uh, World War Z. This is a really fun read, uh, not only because it concerns zombies and people, you know, in a post-apocalyptic environment trying to figure out what they're doing, 
but he does a great job of taking the idea of the zombie apocalypse and applying it to different regions of the planet, different situations, uh, and asking, like, hey, how would the zombie apocalypse uh, affect uh, relations between India and Pakistan? And uh, it, hmm. it has a really thought-provoking way of looking at it. So, so I would recommend that to any listeners out there who are into zombies. Uh, we also have a quick email from Chris with a K. Chris with a K writes in and says, Thanks for having such a great show while listening to the prolonged lifespan episode. That's 999 birthday candles. I immediately began to wonder if suicides rates would jump along with the increased lifespan. Even though people could be uh, healthy physically, the mental toll of such longevity would be extreme. Trying to find purpose in life may be difficult, and I don't want to work until I'm 65 now. What would I feel like if I had to work until I was 650 years old before I could uh, retire? That alone uh, makes a person prone to suicide. Um, major societal changes would have to occur before I want to live to be a thousand. If we were to, if we lived to that age, we'd be in school until we were 200 years old. Um, wouldn't have children or get married until we were 300. And that would bring up the point of marriage. The thought of spending a lifetime with the same person seems astronomical in these terms. Anyways, thanks for having such a great podcast and keep up the good work. Indeed, these are, uh, you know, all the different things you have to think about if human life uh, lifespan was to jump from uh, less than a century to more than nine centuries. How would that affect the, the flow uh, and the basic definition of what it is to be human? Right. Can you upload another person's brain to your own brain? Could you have a different experience? Could you completely start over at 200 and become a different person? There's yeah. all sorts of questions. That Could you go up. from being a TV star to a movie star and then back to being a TV star again? Um, your career? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Tom Hanks, we don't, you don't see him going back to TV, do you? No. Not yet. No. no. So, hey, um, if you have any... Thing to add about the technology of the ancients, uh, be it a really cool uh, corner from history that we missed, or a, a really out there theory about how you know the ancient uh, Babylonians had submarines or something, then uh, hit us up with it. Share it with us uh, on Facebook. Again, we are Blow the Mind there, and you can also find us on Twitter, also Blow the Mind, and we update both those feeds with stuff uh, all day long. Different uh, different links here on, on this one and on the other, so that there's a little diversification. Yeah, and also make sure that you check out the article, What Was Archimedes' Death Ray? Give us a little bit more into Archimedes and uh, all the coolness that he created. And you can just pop that into our search bar, or perhaps it will be on our homepage on the day that you come to HowStuffWorks.com. In the meantime, you can send us an email at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Tomorrow.